The scripture reading for this morning is from Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This is God's word. Good morning. It has been a challenging season, hasn't it? In some ways, we've suffered together this year. We're always delighted to be here. You are our extended family. It always feels like a reunion and less like a visit, certainly less like me doing Donnie a favor and giving him a break, the pulpit. It just feels like just running into family we haven't seen in a bit. We're thankful for you. And one of the good things about these um, breaks in between our reunions is I get to hear a new instrument added uh, every time. So this time it was the saxophone, my goodness, brother. Uh, you know, I, I come from a community and a time where there was no saxophone. It was all electric guitar with lots of distortion and drums and just screaming, lots of scream, not singing, screaming. Um, as I'm getting older, I'm mellowing, and man, that saxophone. <laughs> wow, that was so good. It, it, what a blessing to... And, and my brother Cornell plays saxophone. He's been telling me about it. I was like, eh. Oh, man, this morning, uh, what an accompaniment to move me into the presence of God, the truths of the gospel, and to say again in my soul, it is well, it is true. I'm in Christ. Thank you. So this series of sermons is entitled Dining with the King, and it's meant for us as a community, as a growing family, to revisit many of the narratives in the Bible which take place in the context of meals. And that speaks to my heart. I'm a second-generation Indian, and uh, we do almost anything relational around food. Uh, there, there's no such thing as a prayer meeting, uh, a, a sporting event, um, prayer, prayer uh, family prayer even. Um, there's no such thing without having Indian food nearby. There's no such th- there is no relational anything unless there's food at the table. 
And what you've been understanding and what you've been learning is that in the culture of the times of the Bible, it was very much the same. That the meals shared in the narratives were times of particular intimacy, relational depth, and those times help us learn something special and important about Jesus, His character, His work. And the passage that was just read is one such story, only this time. It's Jesus sharing a meal with his dad, Joseph, with his mom, Mary, and most importantly, with his heavenly father. This story which we just heard is not only the first, but the only boyhood story of Jesus throughout the Bible. There is no other mention of his life, any stories of his life when he was a boy. Only Luke says, I want to include this, and therefore we assume that God says, put that one in the book and pass it on to my children of all time. If there was any story that from birth to the age of about 30-something that I want my people to read and know, it's this story. And it's a curious one. Because in this story, we hear the first recorded words of Jesus. The first recorded words of Jesus come in the form of a question, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? What a curious way to let your opening words, God's opening words, God enfleshed opening words to the world in the form of a question to his mama, Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? It is curious. And it's easy to kind of say, okay, that was weird. Let's get to chapter 3. But I think, like every other narrative surrounding a meal, this one teaches us something very particular, very special, very important about God. I want to suggest to you that there are at least three things that this passage shows us. One, it shows us the disorientation of difficult conversations. Two, it shows us the presence that stays and remains till the end. And three, how both of those move us to a new and truer worship. So, disorientation presence, and worship. First, disorientation. When you read this passage in the very first two verses, everything seems pretty normal, pretty first-century Jewish family-ish. Deuteronomy 16 laid out the law, hey, Hebrews, when it comes time for the feast of the Passover... I want you to go to Jerusalem and celebrate it. And so Jews from everywhere, including Joseph and Mary, and because they didn't have public transportation like we do, and because it was dangerous to walk by foot, they would go with relatives and friends together in a big pack and walk by foot to Jerusalem, a huge pack. And Joseph and Mary had a family tradition. From this we know that every single year, It was their family tradition to make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, on this particular occasion, this year, Jesus is 12 years old. 
And in Jewish terms, that means he is in that very special spot of transitioning from boyhood to manhood. In, from a Jewish perspective, he is on his way towards becoming accountable to believe and hold and live out the law. He's about, he either had his bar mitzvah or he's on the verge of it. And so Jesus this year is attending Joseph and, with Joseph and Mary the feast of the Passover, the meal, and it's at a very critical time in his life. So, so far, everything is normal. Everybody does that. Every good Hebrew family does this. But lest we think that this is the first century Jewish version of the Brady Bunch, real life run smack dab into them in verse 43. Verses 43 to 45. Real life runs into them in the form of this. Joseph and Mary lose Jesus. They lose the Messiah of the world that was entrusted to them. God sends one son, one, He hands it off to the family. And they lose him. I want you to already roll back and think. God said this is a good idea. Put that one in the book. Why? Because he wants to put Joseph and Mary on blast? No, I think there's something more. Something much more important than just embarrassing them. Imagine Joseph and Mary even beginning to pray about this once they realize what's happened. God, uh, yeah, about Jesus. Wouldst thou give us the wisdom to know where he might be? <laughs> right? How do, you, how do you even start? In this day and age, parental rights would be terminated. And I know that because my wife was a social worker in North Philly. And for absentee parents or parents that were abusive she would have to, as a social worker, on behalf of the children, go to court to terminate the rights of parents. These parents lost the Messiah, the Son of God, God and fleshed. So they make their way back. Three days. Three days. It's not just one day. It's three days of searching. And when they find him, it says they were astonished. Why? Well, they find Jesus doing something in Jerusalem, which is weird. Jesus is with the teachers of the law. Because in, during the, these feasts, like Passover, like Pentecost, the Sanhedrin would say, you know what? While everybody's in town, let's have an open forum. Let's teach about the law. Let's, let's welcome people to come into the discussion and ask your questions that we might provide the answers. Go ahead. Open forum. And it appears from what this story is telling us that Jesus, verse 46, was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And it says that everyone who heard him was amazed. So his parents are astonished. The teachers of the law are amazed. Now in the Greek, the word amazed It doesn't mean, oh, wow. It means 
What the? It's less, that's so cool. And more, that doesn't make any sense. For people who like to use their logical, rational reasoning, their spatial reasoning, this didn't fit any category. They couldn't take this block, Jesus, and file, save it in, a, in the right folder, in the right directory, so that they could, on, on a moment's notice, go and pull it back and retrieve it. They couldn't understand. They were amazed. They were astonished. They were confused. And Mary says, Son, why, why have you treated us like this? Your father, you notice the wife saying, Your father. <laughs> it's important. It's, it's, it's true. It happens all the time. Your dad. Your father and I have been anxiously searching everywhere for you. And here's Jesus' first words in all of the scripture. Why were you searching everywhere for me? Didn't you know I'd be here? And it says in verse 50, they did not understand what he was saying to them. They were confused. They were disoriented. The people who had no access to him, that were not familiar with him, were amazed. What the? And the people who knew him best could not understand him. The people on the outside couldn't. The people on the inside couldn't. And here is the point. That's more normal than abnormal. When you run into Jesus Christ, in fact, let me put it this way. I've been walking with Jesus Christ for 27 years. I grew up in the church, but 27 years ago, all I can do is attribute it to the Spirit of God. Something 27 years ago, likely the Spirit, said to my soul, the story, the tall, true tale, it's, it's really true. Believe it. Go for it. And that means I've had 27 years to walk on this road that leads to heaven, that means I've probably had more time than any of you to sin in really, really big ways, in spectacular ways, to fail, to be weak. And this is what I've learned. If you have never stood before God and been confused, with all the love in my heart, I want to tell you that you're worshiping an idol. If you have never stood before God and been afraid as one brother to another, to a sister, the chances are you have never really stood before God. Because Jesus confounds everyone that runs into him, and it's disorienting. That is why so many people are out running, heading to Costco, instead of coming into churches all throughout Philadelphia. Because when they hear the story, they go, no way, that's crazy. 
God zipped down in the form of a baby? Really? God, the Creator, was a baby that had to be patted through the night because he couldn't sleep without his dad at three in the morning, patting him, uh, singing all kinds of songs, Tomlin songs, Redmond songs, worship songs. At, at four in the morning, you get desperate, you start singing some Tupac, anything to get this kid to sleep. That's God. Let me ask you, does your theological skin crawl if you imagine Jesus as a baby that's hungry and needs to nurse? I'm not saying that to, to, for shock value. I'm telling you the true story of the gospel. And most people say, this is a hard... T-. No, I can't. I can't do it. In fact, this is what they're astounded by. And I know this because I only have... God, God help Shine and I. We're trying to become friends more so with people who are unchurched, who don't believe what we do. We're trying to lock horns and live life with them. But what we are finding in the last several years of becoming friends, true friends that we work with, that we love, that we pray for and pray with, is that what they find so unbelievable is we find it so easy. They're astounded. How can you guys so easily believe it? They wonder this. If the only way to have faith is to jettison every doubt, every question, then I am not the guy. I can't do it. And they look at us and think they just believe it. And they think we're either misguided or they just think we're impossible. We can never be like us. They can never be like There was a TV show, a spectacular show, one of the most awful endings of all time. Some of you know where I'm going. The show Lost. Two characters, John Locke. John Locke represents is symbolically a religious man. Okay? He calls himself a man of faith. And he is stuck on an island with many other people, but one other person, a rival, a philosophical rival. His name is Jack. Jack is this irreligious agnostic skeptic. And they clash. Throughout the seasons, they just clash on their philosophical gun. One is a man of faith, one is an absolute skeptic. And at one point, the dialogue goes like this. I wonder if you remember, because it was stunning for me. It reveals something. At one point, John Locke says to Jack, why do you find it so hard to believe? And Jack goes, why do you find it so easy? And Locke goes, it's never been easy. And there's a dramatic pause, and they look at each other. And even I looked at the screen, and I said, that's right. It's never been easy, but we make it look like it is. And it makes people say, then I can't. I can't. There's no room for someone like me that has lots of questions, lots of doubts. There's no space. And that's a tragedy because the normal life of walking with Jesus is disoriented, difficult conversations. For me, personally, God unlocked a key of freedom 10 years ago. There was a man, a Westminster 
seminary professor named Al Groves. He was a colleague of Shiny's and a good friend, a dear friend. He was dying of cancer. And so many were praying for this faithful, gentle, kind man. And one day our pastor came to a men's prayer group and said, hey, Al called me and he asked that we would pray for him. And I heard the words that day that God used to unlock something in my heart. I don't know what to say except my life was changed. One brother said, Pastor, I really have a hard time praying for Al's healing. He said, because if God, I'm asking God for a good thing. This godly man who teaches, his job is to teach people so that they can teach people about the grace of God, the gospel. We're asking for his healing. It's a good thing. And if God doesn't heal him, I don't know what to do with that. And I felt shackles fall off my heart because for the first time in that time, it was 17 years of walking with Christ, someone said out loud, what I kept shoving down in my heart. See, all I knew all my life of walking with Christ up until 10 years ago was I should never doubt him. I should never accuse him. All I knew is it was wrong. So fake it if necessary. Pretend at all costs, but never let him or anyone see you sweat. And for me 10 years ago, in hearing that confession, here's what I thought. Jesus, Jesus is the one who reveals these things. Jesus is the one who initiates difficult conversations. It's not that I have these questions and I say, knock, 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 Jesus, I got to talk to you about something. I got some questions and I roll the scroll out and say, boom, 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 boom. No. It's that Jesus comes into my space and he says, let's really talk about what's really on your heart. I think this story, among many others, tells us a very important truth. Jesus is a lot more comfortable with our doubts than we are. And not only is he comfortable, he initiates and says, talk to me. Come, let us reason together. Come, all of you who are weary and working so hard, I can give you rest. You're confused you don't know where to begin, but I'm telling you, come. Let's have a difficult conversation. There's a... One of the means of grace for me is music. Music is something that God has always used in my life to help me. And there's a singer-songwriter named Andrew Peterson. And he wrote a song called The Silence of God. And I want to read just part of it. I want to ask you if you can resonate with these words. In the silence of God, Andrew Peterson writes, it's enough to drive a man crazy. 
it'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane when he's bleeding, bleeding like a sheep, for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. I need songs like that, honesty like that, to help put words to things that are really in my heart so that I can enter a difficult conversation that he is already initiating. And I could say, Lord, this is where I really am. And you know all things. You, you are not surprised by what's here. You're only waiting for me to share where I really am. What I'm trying to suggest is that maybe this passage is specifically reminding us that God understands the fight in all of us. The fight of wanting to give up, but wanting to believe. Hurting so bad, but thinking of God and sincerely wanting to trust Him. You don't think you can go on, but you know you have to hope in God. Jesus understands that real life has a lot of schizophrenic back and forth that confuses us. But I want to say that maybe the disorientation is God's mercy to you and to me. Maybe, maybe it's his way of revealing to us not what we profess to believe, but by what we actually believe. And here's the good news. He not only initiates the conversation, but he stays on the floor and he finishes the dance with us. There's a great book called Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus, and the authors, they sum up the beauty of table fellowship like this. Listen to this. Though the Israelites didn't have fancy tables or place settings, they had something better. So for them, the table was much more than a place to eat. It was a place of mutual trust and vulnerability. Sitting down at the table to eat with someone meant you had a protected relationship with them. Whom you ate with revealed something important about who you were, showing to whom you belonged. So just as the word house could mean your family lineage, or the word bed could mean your intimate relationship, the word table could stand for family and friends, all those you trusted and on whom you depended. These were the people with whom you enjoyed table fellowship. In fact, table fellowship implied a nearly inviolable relationship. Listen to this. To be a guest at a family's table meant that you were under their protection. As long as you were with family, they were honor-bound to defend you even at the cost of their lives. We read in this passage that Jesus, among those who were confused, he sat with them. He stayed with them. He listened to them. He asked questions. When he was asked, he responded. For three days, those who were confounded by him didn't repel him. It made him stay. His parents did not understand him. But verse 50 says this. Verse 51 says this. He went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient 
to them. The confusion did not repel Jesus. In fact, it made him all the more demonstrate his presence. He wasn't going anywhere. He was with them, and he is with us till the end. And do you know that it's his presence which is what really matters? Did you know that in the Bible, in every complaint in the Bible, there's one of two questions that are happening, every single one. From Old Testament and New Testament, Genesis to Revelation, if you see a complaint, it'll be one of these two questions. Either one, it's God, where are you? Or two, God, if you love me, then why? My father passed away on February 19th, and in many ways I'm still reeling from that loss. It's been five months. Shortly before he passed, he had been suffering for a long time with heart disease. And I was in the CCU with him, and I would be by his bedside three or four in the morning, listening to him groan in pain. And one night, as I was praying for him, I, I honestly said, Oh God, I don't know if I want to see him suffer like this. I'd rather it end than have him continue to go on like this. And in that moment, I was praying silently. My father yelled out in pain, and he said, God, why are you doing this to me? Why me? He didn't even know I was awake. But I wept. Because for the first time in this very Indian father-son relationship, where very few times do we show weakness to each other, we were together going to our father, who we knew was with us. And we were saying, like Mary, why are you treating us like this? Why? We're anxious. Why? I want to suggest to you that like Mary says in verse 51, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. This is the path to a new and truer worship where you believe that he's big enough to handle your questions, my questions. In fact, he initiates it. He remains in the dance to the end. And it helps us to worship him with a freedom. I wonder if there's room in churches today for people to worship that way, with tears fall, flowing and sometimes, sometimes, fists balled up, disoriented and confused, but still believing that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not suffer, snuff out. In Jesus Christ, we have the answer to both of the questions lying behind every complaint in the Bible. He is the question to God, where are you? He is the question to God, if you love me, then why? You remember the meal. The meal is the feast of Passover. 
And now what is Passover? Well, look in your bulletins and you'll see coming down at the end of August, Donnie's going to walk through with you what the Feast of Passover is. So let me just briefly say this. Passover represented the beginning of Israel's history and the deliverance out of Egypt, the night when God told Moses that every single oldest boy in the family of Egypt had to die, but he would protect his children. As long as each family took their best lamb, killed it, put some of the blood on their front doors, God would pass over the house, see the blood, and know that the perfect lamb had died in the place of the family. A substitutionary atonement had taken place. And that very night, every Egyptian boy was killed, and God's family was not only safe, They were set free from slavery, and the Passover feast, this meal, was Israel's way of remembering their deliverance. And so Joseph and Mary and Jesus celebrate this. And Jesus records in the midst of that celebration, Jesus goes missing for three days. And on the third day, in the midst of anxiety, confusion, astoundment, Amazement, they found him. They found Jesus, and he stayed. He went with them, and he obeyed. But friends, this is only the first time that Jesus would be missing for three days. Luke also ends this gospel with a narrative surrounding a meal. But this would be the last one he would share with his disciple. Because Jesus knew he was about to be betrayed and hand over to be crucified. He knew his friends were about to deny him. And he warned them all. And he invited three of them to pray with him. To have this difficult conversation with God. But they fell asleep three times. There is a picture that I've come across that for me really shows at least one sculptor's idea of what that time of prayer was like. And again, Andrew Peterson creatively and honestly writes about this. There's a statue of Jesus on a monastery knoll in the hills of Kentucky, all quiet and cold. And he's kneeling in the garden as silent as a stone. All his friends are sleeping And he's weeping all alone. And the man of all sorrows, he never forgot what sorrow is carried by the hearts that he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. Look at that picture. Jesus is beyond disorientation. He is absolutely in agony. The Bible actually says that he asks in this difficult conversation, knowing full well, knowing what Passover is about, knowing that there had to be a substitution so that the family would be spared. Jesus, in a difficult conversation, says, God, if there's any way, Father, let this cup pass from me. I know why I'm here, but if there's a last-minute way to get out from underneath this, would you show me? 
That's a difficult conversation. Look at that picture. It's not someone piously with a ray of light. It's someone clutching his head in agony, wrestling, disoriented. Why? Because he didn't want to suffer? No! My friends, it wasn't because he didn't want to suffer. The very fact that he was going to God and the very fact that he ends, it, that, that he ends the request with, if it's your will, let this cup of suffering pass, but not my will. Your will be done. Here's what Jesus is assuming. He's assuming if he suffers, he will not be forsaken. God will be with him. He is saying, Lord, if this is your cup for me, then let it happen. And here's the proof. On the cross, as he's dying, arguably when he's saving confused, anxious people the most, he says, why? God, God, my God. He's still worshiping a new and truer form of worship. He reaches back to Psalm 22 and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, why are you treating me like this? Why? I'm your only begotten son. Kill me, but don't leave me. He was confused. He was abandoned. And like the beginning of his childhood, his mother Mary lost him again for one, two, three days. He was missing. Mary didn't know where he was. She was disoriented, confused, and she and Mary Magdalene are looking for Jesus' body, and they run to the tomb where they thought his body would be, and it's empty. They see someone standing by the tomb, and they say, where have you put him? Tell me where he is. Where is the body? And the answer comes back, he is not here. He's risen. I.e., did you not know I had to be in my father's house? Hear these amazing words in John 14 from Jesus to his disciples who did not understand him, who were confounded, who were scared, who betrayed and denied him. Jesus says, don't, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Listen, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I am going to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Jesus was lost for three days so that you and I could be found. So in those days, in those seasons, when we feel like he has forsaken us, when situations and our hearts and our actions seem to indicate that he's left us, we can know that we are ultimately not. And that means we can have difficult conversations with him. 
where we come clean and admit that we're disappointed, we're scared, we're angry, we don't trust him, and we can know he will never leave us or forsake us. We can know that because he was forsaken, we can never be forsaken. And that's why we can treasure Christ. That's why it's a new and truer worship. That's why we can see him and prize him because he died for those who were genuinely confused by him. We can worship the one who rose and ascended and will come again. You know, on the evening before he died, he said to his disciples he would not eat of the Passover again until it found fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And so what that means, Metro, this is exciting. There's a meal there's a moment of dining with the king to come. And that moment involves gathering everybody in East Falls, everyone in the greater Philadelphia area, and to the ends of the earth to celebrate what he has done, that he can gather the lost, that he can stand with and dance with, to the very end. He even says that to his disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end. We need that kind of Savior, one who can lovingly amaze and astound us so that he can graciously save and change us. One who did not spare his own son, but he spared me. He spared you. Won't you step away from your personal Jesus? Won't you step away from your self-styled idols and worship the real Jesus? Let's pray.